Um, so I want to I want to continue at right at the start we with this book of Colossians that we were looking at last year. We looked at the first two chapters last year, and um, what's amazing is just a little bit of context again. These were a new a group of Christians in a city that was hostile to their new faith. There weren't a lot of other Christians around. They were brand new Christians, probably a few weeks or a few months old. And Paul hadn't been with them, so he writes a letter to them. And he wants to exhort them to say, guys, be careful that human tradition and human philosophy and ways of the world don't creep in to distract you from the authority and supremacy and all-sufficiency of Christ Jesus who is king. So that, and then the first two chapters, there's like a rich theology of the supremacy and all-sufficiency of Christ that we covered last year. The next two chapters, it's only a four-chapter book, the next two chapters of this letter, as he writes to them, are how that theology translates into everyday life. So it becomes a practical theology now, the next two chapters. But it hinges off what was covered in chapter 1 and in chapter 2. So, this is what we're going to cover today. Colossians 3, verses 1 to 6. If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. That's an instruction. If you are a child of God, then seek the things that are above, he says, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things of the earth. He's trying to help them in the way forward. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, that's, that's the word lust, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Yo. He's getting heavy, man. He's just saying, hey guys, let's get real now. I've spoken to you about who Christ is, but now let's talk about how you live every day. So we're going to look at three things this morning. Having a brand new perspective on all things. That's what he wants us to see. Number two, don't tolerate the cravings of that old sinful man that is supposed to have been died and buried with Christ in baptism. Don't let it hang around. Be strong with it. Be ruthless with it. Put it to death. And then thirdly, being aware of God's judgment, his wrath against the vicious evil things that happen on earth. Hmm, Christians, let's look at those three things. So number one, he starts off really in a, in a beautiful way, just saying, let me just remind you a little, about, a little bit of theology here. If you died with Christ, you died to the old way of living. That old, corrupt, sinful nature was buried with him in his death on the cross. We covered this. And you were buried with him in baptism. If you have been raised with him, because whoever's in Christ has now been seated in heavenly places. 
If you're a Christian, he's saying, if you're a child of God in Christ, the old has gone, everything has become new. I want you, therefore, to set your heart on things above, where Christ is seated, and where you are now seated. So what are the things above? What is the atmosphere of heaven? What is it? It's the, it's the very kingdom of God in operation. Everything that happens there has this beautiful divine order and flow to it. There is absolute 100% peace. There is, there is not one ounce of anxiety. There is no fear. There is no hatred. There is only powerful, steadfast, eternal love. He says, I want you to start living like that's where you really are. I want you to set your heart, your passions, your desires on those things of peace and love and joy. You know what Paul's saying here? It sounds very much like what Jesus said in Matthew 6.33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things that you need will be added to you. Instead, the tendency for us is to seek promotion at work. Seek more money. Seek to get right with that person who did me wrong. Seek to get angry with that driver who cut me off. Seek to do things the humanistic way. He says, do you not know that you have died? That you're a new creation in Christ? And by faith, Wake up to that reality and set your heart on things above. And don't just set your heart there. Start to think those thoughts. Start. Do you know that you're in control of your mind? Seed, or like all kinds of thoughts pop in, but you determine what happens with those thoughts. You are a powerful person when it comes to this mind. You're not a slave to anybody now that you're set free in Christ. So he's saying, use that mind of yours now to focus on the things of the kingdom of heaven. So when you're tempted to go the other way, my mind is renewed in Christ. Our greatest fight is not against Satan. I don't wake up in the morning, today's the day I'm going to fight Satan, man, I'm going to get it right. Jesus fought Satan for me. Who am I to think I can fight Satan? I can't fight the very arch enemy of God. He fought him. He defeated him. I live from that victory. But my one challenge is, what am I going to set my heart on? Because I'm in control of me. And what am I going to set my mind on? And if I am in Christ, seated with him in heavenly places, and I remind myself of that daily, I start to think the thoughts of heaven. I start to get God's perspective breaking into my reality. All those things are worry, anxiety, fear, bitterness, resentment, offense. All those things are things of the world. God says, Christians, you don't have to have that. You don't. Seriously, you don't have to have it. I don't have to have it. But when I do have it, it's because I've allowed it. Because I've tolerated it. Because I'm letting it stay where it doesn't have to stay. I'm, giving, I'm the only one who gives it permission. Susan has no power to make me feel a certain way, no matter what she does. 
I let her influence what I feel and think about her. If I'm in Christ and I'm in him and the Spirit of God is in me and I'm reminded continually about that, I'm able to get heaven's perspective, the kingdom of God, to respond to no matter what she does. That's how Jesus lived. No matter what anybody did to him, the kingdom of heaven flowed out of him. No matter how angry or violent they got with him, he didn't bow or stoop to their way of living. Christians, God invites us to live the kingdom on earth. Jesus brought the kingdom of God, the future reality, into the present, and now invites us to do the same. Remember, there are two kingdoms, the one of this world where man is king, and the kingdom of God where Jesus is king. Any choice you make is a choice for either one of those two kingdoms. Any choice. One of those two. He's wanting us to understand that he has given us empowering grace to think heavenly thoughts about earthly problems. Yeah? Every single child of God has got that ability in Christ. I've given you empowering grace to have heavenly affections towards earthly people, no matter who they are. I've given you my spirit. Where's it gone? I didn't put it in. Okay, listen to this. I've given you my spirit to think heavenly thoughts about yourself and your destiny on earth. I'm going to have to say it again. I've given you my spirit to think heavenly thoughts about yourself and your destiny on earth. And as Bill Johnson says, I cannot afford to have thoughts in my head about me that God doesn't have in his. So set your hearts and your minds on things above where Christ is seated in the heavenly places, and that's how God wants us to live. These are young Christians, friends. They haven't got their master's degree or their honors or their doctorates. They're just new believers. And he's saying, you can do this because of the power of God that is in you. But here's a little quick one. How do I keep setting my mind and heart on things above? How? I only know one way. Connection with God. So, So how do I keep this thing going well? Connection. Always the goal is connection. So how do you keep this thing going well with God? Connection. How do I connect with God? I only know a few ways, because I'm quite stupid. I just know that whenever I worship Him, the things of the world grow strangely dim, and I see the glory of God. I get heaven's perspective. When I pray, when I pray, I catch the heart of God. I don't go to God with a list. I just start talking to him from my spirit. And as I talk to him, I catch his heart. I catch his heart about problems I'm facing. I catch his heart about people I've got to deal with. I catch his heart about whatever it is. It's like in prayer. And how do I get the, the thoughts of God in my mind? Other than through worship, through prayer, and through studying the scriptures, the beautiful scriptures recorded for us, that Paul didn't even have what we had. Peter didn't even have what we had. They had some scrolls, but they, and they had the words of, and the, rem, the remembrance of Jesus passed on from one to another. We've got them all recorded for us, all of it. And so every day, I go, God, 
I want, to, I want my mind to be filled with your thoughts, your wisdom. That's why Paul says in Colossians, let the words of Christ dwell in you richly. Because when it's dwelling in you richly, it's influencing how you think. It's directing how you think. You're being filled up with God's wisdom and knowledge, and all the wisdom and knowledge is in Christ. All right, so let's move on to the next part. Part two, what's sexually pleasing to God? So when he says now, guys, let's focus here, I want you to notice his first, his first hit is on the whole sexual arena. That's the first place he goes. Isn't that interesting? I find that fascinating. He doesn't go to anger with your boss or to worry about finances. The first place he goes is to the human body and its desires, its passions, its wants. So he says, put to death. That's serious language. But it's, it's a picture of you having died with Christ and the cross, the crucifixion. That's what this is all about. It's, it's like saying, hey, you know that thing that wants to just go and eat and have and want and desire? He says, stop it because it's died with the old. It's dead. So there's a, there's a pointing back to the cross here and what happened in the cross, what happened in our baptism, what happened in our being born again. Put to death whatever's earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God has come. Let me just stop there. By the way, this portion of Scripture is almost mirrored in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 5. You'll see the same flow. Colossians 3, Ephesians 5. So wherever he writes to Christians, wherever they are, this is very important. Romans 8, Paul says, By the Spirit we put to death, same language, Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, Romans 8, By the Spirit of God, not by your own will, not by your own power, by the Spirit of God you put to death crucifixion, the misdeeds of the flesh, the appetites of the flesh. In Romans, he says, reckon yourself dead to the old. By faith, reckon yourself dead to the old. So, sexual immorality. Eugene Peterson's message transliteration says the following, doing whatever grabs your fancy, whatever you want, whenever you want. That's the way of the world. Just follow your passions. Just go for it. Right, so now, I'm speaking to Christians now, so any form of sexual intimacy or sexual encounter done outside of God's defined context is sexual immorality or promiscuity. Sex is God-given and beautiful and wonderful. But God says it's such a powerful, mysterious union that goes on. It is deeply spirit and deeply soul and deeply body that I want it only to be done in the safety of my defined arena. Because when it's taken outside of that, you will get hurt. And you will hurt others. And there will be more complications than you have any idea of. 
But when it's done within this, these parameters that God, that He says, I define for you, you will have the most satisfying, beautiful, joyful human experience when it comes to sex. So I'm talking about any form of sexuality now. Hey? The God-defined context is very clearly portrayed in Scripture. It's between a husband and a wife where the two of them become one. It's what's known as marriage. That's, that's, that's the area where it's safe and it's beautiful. Anything outside of that is sexual promiscuity, sexual morality. But the problem is, if you are married and you take, you start to do anything outside of that without, so obviously I've got to use myself as an example. If I start to go anywhere outside of this for anything sexual, I'm not taking it outside of the arena that God has designed. Because this, this arena, marriage is not living in a house together. Marriage is two hearts that become irrevocably and interconnected and interwoven. That's what marriage is. And when you take it outside of that thing, whether you take it out in imagination, whether you take it digitally, whether you take it emotionally into an emotional romance, whether you take it into an actual sexual thing, anything outside of that, Paul says, put to death that thing because it will do you damage. It will not glorify God. It will hurt. It will bring pain. But this area, this arena, is beautiful. It is, the, it is a covenantal relationship that is deeply spirit, deeply soul, and deeply body. And you want to know why God makes it safe. You want to know why it's so pleasing to God to have sex inside of marriage? Because it involves faith. See, you don't need faith to have sex outside of marriage. No faith. It's just human body appetite. The Bible says everything outside of faith is displeasing to God. The only thing that counts is faith, expressing itself in love. Faith is a big deal to God. If you read the scriptures, how often do you see faith? So, what, so what's the big deal with marriage and faith? Well, let me tell you the big deal. Whenever two people choose to become one, it is a massive act of faith. Because I don't know the future. So when I say to God, God, I choose to marry her, it is a massive act of faith. I am sure of what I hope for, but I only hope for it. I am certain inside of what I cannot yet see. It's faith. But it's, it, it, it's, not, um, what's the word? it's not, it's not bulletproof. This thing can fail. But why doesn't it fail? Well, there's many reasons, but one of them is, I've got faith. And she's got faith. And faith pleases God. Whoever comes to God must know that he rewards those who earnestly seek him with faith. That's Hebrews. So I wanted to say, you don't need faith for other sexual activity. But you need faith for this. And it's so pleasing to God. He rewards faith all the time. He honors faith. He blesses it. Why do some Christians not want to get married? It's the way of the world. The whole book of Colossians is don't let the human traditions come in and rob you from Christ. 
The picture is Christ and the church as a man and a woman, the two become one, like we become one with him. It's always the picture. But, but Christians now say, well, we don't have to get married because we love each other. And, and God knows our hearts. Christians. So my question is, why don't you want to take, why don't you want to get married? Why? What's the reason? Why don't you want to finish the home run? Why don't you want to knock it out the park? Why don't you want to get married? And most often, it's because of fear. Some form of fear has crept in because you've either experienced hurt or pain or you've witnessed hurt or pain and you're afraid that this thing could go south and bring more pain and damage and so you don't want to do it. But I, 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 all I know is the gospel says perfect love casts out all fear. And so the gospel of God and the supremacy of Christ is able to eradicate fear. I, am, I do not have fear that Susan's going to betray me. I have no fear about it. Does it mean she could betray me? Well, she could. Does it mean I could betray her? Yes, I could. But there's no fear. Because you know what fear does? Fear is an atmosphere for the things of the earth and the world to fester. Whereas faith is an atmosphere that doesn't allow that stuff to grow. Also, you don't need faith to live together as much as you when you get married. I'm, I'm, I'm highlighting faith, you'll see. Because you know what, when you live together, you know what you're doing? You're saying like, well, you know what, it's, it'll be pretty cool because we'll just test it out. We'll just see how it goes. We'll experience it. And then we'll know if it works, then we can get married. Sounds a bit like Doubting Thomas to me. Sounds a bit like, well, you know, Jesus, I'm, I, I, I don't believe that you rose from the dead. Only once I've experienced you, then I'll believe. Jesus said, blessed are those who believe without seeing. So marriage is blessed are those who believe without first experiencing. That's where the favor of God flows. That's where the joy of God flows. That is where God is glorified with faith. So when it comes to sexuality, anything that doesn't involve faith, it's of the world. Put to death those things and come back to the glory of what sex is supposed to be in marriage, the arena, God says, are blessed, are multiplied. It is beautiful. When you commit to marriage, it's a powerful act of faith, and faith pleases God. In fact, the New Testament teaches anything outside of faith does not please Him. All right, and then part three. The wrath to come. <laughs> Why does, why does he say, be aware of the wrath to come around these things? Because I want to tell you something. God is not a block of granite. God has incredible passion and emotion for the people he loves. The world, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Every time somebody gets abused or exploited or taken advantage of, or hurt, God feels that pain. That's why he died. But God's wrath, his anger. How many of you know there's a wrath of God? I mean, it's in the scriptures everywhere. You, you can't deny it, it's there. But let me tell you something that frees us up. It's really, really beautiful. Is the wrath of God is not against man 
but against the wickedness of sin. You've got to understand that. The wrath of God is not against man, the frailty of man, the weakness of man, because he understands. He said, I became like you. I know what it's like. But the wrath of God is against the wickedness that man does, the sin that we do, and that is what gets judged. So let me say it like this. God is to be feared, Christians. God is not some little Mickey Mouse toy. He's not your buddy. Uh, honestly, I don't like it. I, I, I love all people. I don't judge them, but you won't, you're not going to hear me calling the man upstairs. He's not the man upstairs. He's God. Jesus is king. He's like, wow. But I'm not petrified of him that I fear He's going to punish me. There's no, there's no punishment in love. The 1 John 14 clearly. So it's not that fearful kind of, I'm so scared. No, it's like, wow, reverence and awe for this powerful God. But when, when he gets going around the abuse and the injustice and the, and the terrible things that are done to human hearts, he gets going. You don't want to get in that way. So you're going, well, Greg, I don't know where I stand now. Like, like what happens if I'm, I'm, no, let me tell you something, Christians. This is really, really good news. The wrath of God is not against man. It's against the wickedness of sin. The wrath of God was not against his son, Jesus. He didn't turn his face away from Jesus. The wrath of God is against the wickedness and the sin that put his son on the cross. That's the wrath of God that gets satisfied. One Thessalonians, one in verse 10, Paul writes and he says, And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Christians, no wrath coming our way. We have been set free from that wrath against wickedness and deceit. No matter what you've done, if you're in Christ, no wrath against you. God is no longer angry with us, treating us like our sins deserve. But there's a wrath to come for those who choose to stand without Christ. You can judge me, God, I don't need Christ. Look what I've done. That person they can experience the wrath of God. Second scripture, just in case you don't believe me on that one, 1 Thessalonians 5.9, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's not for us, church. Revelation 6, verse 15 and 16, because now there's a few verses there. Revelations 6, Revelations 11, Revelations 19, speak of wrath. So let's go through these very briefly. Revelation 6, I'll just put those verses up there. You can check them out. This is where the kings of the earth and the powerful and the, the arrogant boast against God. There's a verse that says there, they eventually cry out, fall on us rocks, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb, Jesus. Revelation 19 speaks of Jesus, the rider on the white horse, 
with us, the church army is riding behind him, and he will tread the wine press of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty against the wickedness of the world that they hurt each other, they kill each other, they abuse each other, they rape, they exploit, they just, that stuff is going to receive the wrath of God. Not us, church. We're riding behind them on the horses. And then Revelation 11, verse 17 to 18. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. This is the end. In other words, everything now is being wrapped up. Wrapped up. He's taken his great power, he's recreated the heavens and the earth, and he's begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for the rewarding of your servants. That's, that's, that's us. We get rewarded. The rewarding of your servants, the prophets, and the saints, and for those who fear your name, both small and and great. So why does Paul throw that in there? To say, hey guys, I want you to understand that, that sex is a very powerful thing, but it can be very abusive. And if you disregard the beauty of what I've given you, and you take it outside, and you do damage to others, the wrath of God is against such. So stay within the context of my predefined safe place where it's beautiful. But church, do not fear. I don't fear wrath. Even if, I, even if you make a mistake with God, even if you sin, even if, even if you go and do the most stupid, stupid thing and your whole marriage is messed up forever, God is still merciful and gracious. All you do is come to him. Say, I'm sorry. I made such a mistake. And he says, I love you. Welcome home. You're probably not going to get the greatest reward, but you're fine. You're safe. You're his. Nothing can ever take you away from him. So the wrath's not for us. We have passed through. But church, treat the sexual thing with the necessary focus that Paul wants us to, to look at it with. It's not just Mickey Mouse. Let's pray.